so people say, you know, how'd you get interested in happiness? And part of me wants to be like, I was never interested in happiness. If by happiness, we mean probably what you mean. Like, am I happy today? And then the answer to that is find your emoji. And that, and that's certainly not the goal of human life. Philosopher Jennifer Frey says that if you want to be happy, you should read philosophy. Now, for those of us who didn't fall in love with Kant's critique of pure reason in college, that may sound like terrible advice. But Frey isn't just standing on a soapbox. Americans spend over $11 billion every year on self-help, which means we're already looking to philosophy for help. It's just bad philosophy. For Frey, if we want to uncover a more holistic vision of the good life, we need to go back to the classics to Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas. When we do that, she says, we discover that happiness is less about feeling good all the time and more about cultivating a vision of life that gets you outside of yourself. So I guess we could just start with talking a little bit about your interest in philosophy. How did you get interested in studying philosophy? And then maybe a little bit about how you got interested in studying happiness in the good life. Sure. I think like most people, you know, in high school, I, I went to public high school in Cincinnati, Ohio, and philosophy wasn't taught, mm. uh, even though I was in, you know, kind of the advanced placement track you know, we learned literature and, and history, but no philosophy. But I did become interested in philosophy in high school. And I think mostly I was just bored by everything else. Okay. And I wanted I wanted something new and I and I had this sense somehow that there were philosophers, that this was a thing. And this was about this was the mid nineties. And so this was about the time that borders, books and music uh, was was becoming a thing. Oh yeah, which is yeah, it's depressing now. I think I it's think it doesn't yeah, exist anymore. Yeah, and then I went to college. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, and there was a tremendous amount of pressure on me to do something that would have. I don't know, kind of financial security, right. economic security, and also, a, you know, a certain kind of status. There was a lot of pressure to do something sort of pre-law, which I had absolutely zero interest in. Um, but I just sort of doggedly persisted, and I declared a philosophy major pretty much right away. At, at first, I was kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll do more literature or history. But I was fairly scandalized by my literature uh, courses, where there was, I should say, like a hostility to anything like truth claims. And, yeah. and, and I felt very alienated from that. And so I, I migrated over to philosophy and it wasn't a perfect fit for me, but it was definitely a much better fit than literature. But I also just found philosophy incredibly exciting and engaging. And I just, you know, I just kind of got hooked. And, yeah. and you know, I'm still doing it. So, <laughs> Would you say that part of what drew you into philosophy was that, I guess, drive towards truth claims in general to actually seek out truth itself? 
really sure. Like what was going on in my head at the time was pretty simple. I mean, I just had a lot of really basic questions about human beings and, and frankly about myself. And I, and, and it seemed to me that there weren't a lot of great resources for answering those questions. And I was hoping that philosophy was going to help me. And, and what I, what I came to discover was that I really gravitated towards ancient and medieval philosophy. And the question about the existence of God was something that mm. became extremely important for me because I was at the time a fairly committed atheist. I was raised in a religiously indifferent household, a religiously indifferent borderline hostility, but definitely like I did not have a religious upbringing. Yeah. And I kind of had, and this was before the new atheist, but I kind of had a new atheist perspective about religion in general. And one of the things that I encountered in studying philosophy was incredibly smart religious people, including some of my professors. And that had a very profound impact on me because it put a lot of pressure on this idea that I had that people were religious because they were ignorant or because they were emotionally needy or they just mm. could, they just didn't know science or something. I mean, I had these impossibly crude ideas. And so the question, you know, it could it be the case that there is a God um, became a very important question for me. Um, and it led me to reading a lot of ancient and medieval philosophy. I think in particular by reading Thomas Aquinas, I, I changed my mind and uh, decided that not only was it possible that God existed, very, very obviously possible, um, but that I myself came to be convinced that it was true. And so that was a huge turning point in my life because, mm. you know, I'm, I'm 18 and yeah. like a very radical change in worldview. And I didn't know what to do with it because yeah. you're in like this weird position where you're like, okay, I believe in God. And then if I believe in God, then obviously you have to worship him. But then <laughs> what, I'm just going to choose a religion. Like that's a very strange position to find i mean that's absolutely that seems like well, a very heavy choice and that, is that happening in, with it all in your freshman year of college yes oh my goodness yeah so you so go, I, yeah <laughs> yeah i did not have a typical college experience by any means and you know especially that first year i basically lived in the library wow. um yeah. Well, this is like the the almost the polar opposite of this, I guess, stereotype. I, so I came into to college studying philosophy as well, but I came from the other side. I came from a Christian upbringing, mm -hmm. and a lot of people were very concerned that I would go to ph study philosophy and then lose my faith. Like I would encounter existentialism and Nietzsche, and, and then I would all of a sudden realize none of it was true. Well, it happens to and, a lot of people. Right. And you almost had this the inverse of that experience, you know, you come into philosophy thinking it may encourage you to continue on this, your own path or whatever worldview. And, and all of a sudden you're now believing in, in something that philosophy was maybe supposed to dispel. 
Yeah, well, I, I mean, I definitely did not come to philosophy enchanted in any religious sense, but I, I think pretty, pretty quickly when you start reading uh, canonical figures in Western philosophy, you know, the, the question of God becomes very explicit. And that, that surprised me. I did not, I did not expect to find that. Well, let's maybe talk a little bit about Aquinas. You mentioned him, and he seems to be a really significant influence for you. What was it when you first encountered Aquinas that was so compelling about either belief in God or just the way he was thinking? Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's hard to get back in that headspace. But I guess, um, you know, I think I think the main thing for me was it seemed true. And... Mm. And I think that can be difficult for people to understand, but, you know, my background was a kind of relativism. You know, I was, I was definitely raised to be a, a kind of relativist about things, you know, don't judge people, everybody has their own truth, that kind of thing. And that started to seem empty to me, even in high school. You know, I, I, I sort of saw through that as, you know, basically a kind of nihilism that wasn't going to help anyone. And I had no conceptual room for thinking that there was a Christian intellectual tradition that had a very convincing and compelling rational explanation of morality. But that's what you find in Aquinas. So people say, you know, how'd you get interested in happiness? And part of me wants to be like, I was never interested in happiness. If by happiness, we mean probably what you mean, right? Which is sort of like, like, am I happy today? And then the answer to that is like, find your emoji, right? Am I the smiley face? Am I the cry face? Am I the, like, what, how do I subjectively feel right in this moment? And obviously that is a very unstable, somewhat uninteresting uh, phenomenon. Um, and that and that's certainly not the goal of human life. You know, the, the basic Aristotelian idea about what we might just call practical philosophy is that living well is a matter of right practical reasoning. Yeah. So that, that's kind of like the formula. And living well is a translation of the Greek eudaimonia or oipraxia. Um, and eudaimonia is one of those words that really has no great English correlate, um, maybe blessedness, but that has all kinds of connotations that really aren't in Aristotle. So we just translate right. it as happiness. Hmm. Well, let's, I mean, you have a forum coming up. You're coming to speak with Veritas at Yale with Lori Santos, who's a professor at Yale, who's been teaching one of their most popular courses ever, I think, on on happiness and how to be happy. Right. And she's working, I guess, maybe more within that psychological, maybe, framework that we were, you know, am I happy today? Happiness maybe being an attitude. Of course, I don't want to straw man that i think there's something more robust to it that she's working through Mm -hmm. but it's more in line with uh happiness is something you can configure in your day-to-day life right uh but it sounds like you're not understanding happiness or the good life 
in the same way. Are are there is there any compatibility between those two views? Yeah, that's a that's a great and and really hard question. So part of what I've been up to, well actually most of what I've been up to for the past 3 years is working on a huge interdisciplinary project with social scientists including many different kinds of psychologists and so we're interested in articulating what that ideal is. And I think when we talk about happiness as a goal, as something that we should be promoting uh, for people, we want them to be happy. It's very dangerous not to have a normative objective component of that. Because if happiness is just feeling good, well, if things had worked out slightly differently, Hitler could have been very happy. And Mm. I don't think that's something that we want to be celebrating. Um, So I guess what I'm interested in is maybe what's called a kind of deep happiness, where sure, happiness is in some sense about how you feel. Mm -hmm. Like it would be really weird if, you know, like the happy person were just totally miserable and psychologically tortured and everything was deeply unpleasant and horrible. Right. But they're living a good life, so you can't Yeah, (laughs) it would strain credulity to think that this person is happy in any sense. Um, Nevertheless, um, a happy life doesn't have to be like feeling ecstatic all the time, which would at any rate be exhausting. Um, and And it also is compatible with periods of suffering and, 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 and in a very general way of, of self-sacrifice and self-denial. Um, and, and in order to get that, we have to bring in um, some kind of objective picture of the good human life, which is ordered to something besides your own personal pleasure or subjective good feelings. I think it's a a fact about human beings, a deep fact about human beings that um, we're not happy in the deep sense, satisfied outside of loving, meaningful relationships with others. You know, it goes right back to Aristotle. The Nicomachean Ethics is 10 books. Uh, Two entire books of the Nicomachean Ethics are about friendship. Mm. More than anything else in his ethics, Aristotle talks about friendship. He says you cannot be happy without friends. It's impossible. You love your friends, right? And friends will the good of the other. So Mm. really at the heart of the happy life is willing the good of others. And that means willing the good of others um, in ways that demand self-sacrifice, yeah. And and Aristotle takes it as obvious that the friend will be glad to sac- to make those sacrifices, that it won't be like this torturous thing, this really hard thing for them to do. Um, and what explains that is is the love of the friend. You know, this yeah. this you know, your your feelings of, about other people and that and and to to become that kind of person that can enter into these sorts of friendships 
is not to have as your top priority your own pleasure because it would because obviously I mean, you just, if, if that were the thing you were focused on, you're, you're just not going to be a good friend. It's not going to happen. Right. Well, and it seems like even in our contemporary context, there is an admiration for self-sacrifice. Like if we see on the news, someone, you know, sacrificing themselves to go save someone inside of a burning building or some, something along those lines, we admire that, but we, we almost categorize it as just uh, a free choice in this moment that this guy or girl acted heroically in this one scenario. Um, but it's not something they, we don't talk about it as if they have cultivated the behavior of someone who is, who would do that. Yeah, I agree. You know, we, we like the hero um, where, you know, that the hero is the person who makes the ultimate sacrifice uh, I think we definitely still admire that. And that's a good thing. You know, I would, I'd be very worried for a culture that thought, wow, what a, what an idiot <laughs> running into that loser. burning building. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly, what a loser. Yeah. Um, so we do still admire the hero, but I think what we're more confused about, or we're definitely less, um, less agreed upon is the the importance or the value of everyday self-sacrifice. I think a lot of people resist that. They're very hostile to the very idea of it. Um, So this comes up a lot when people talk about parenting or having children. Um, You know, a lot of people are childless. and, and would like to remain childless, even even married people. Um, birth rates are astonishingly low. They're well below replacement uh, for every single European society. They're well below replacement. Um, wow. And they are they're approaching uh, that in the US as well. Um, and and I and I think related to this is, you know, a real, hesitance um, or even hostility about the kinds of daily self-sacrifice, really, to be honest, I have six children. It's relentless daily (laughs) self-denial and self-sacrifice. It's pretty unclear um, that your kids (laughs) are really going to do much for you ever. Right. (laughs) Um, And so so it's definitely more selfless. Um, and I and I think a lot of people are are really not attracted to that. But what's and and, and let's let's be honest, parenting is very hard. It's, it's very very hard. It's a daily grind, and it and it wears you down. You're up at three in the morning, yeah. knee deep in poop. I mean, it's just it's like it is what it is. And <laughs> and and I think a lot of people, you know, they don't they don't want that. They'd rather just travel the world. Um, but the but the flip side of that is, and here's where psychology does play a really interesting and, and valuable role, is that a lot of work in psychology um, suggests that people who engage in long-term self-sacrificial projects like parenting, um, there are other examples, but parenting is kind of one of the paradigmatic examples, have... Um, 
significantly higher uh, scores in and kind of like uh, well they psychologists tend to call it self-transcendence. They have these self-transcendence measures. Um, but people who score high on these measures have a deep sense of meaning and purpose in their life. And they tend mm. to be happier in the, in the long run, right? So if you ask a parent who's got like a two-year-old and a five-month-old, like, are you happy? They're like, oh, no. <laughs> like, this is awful. <laughs> no, this is a nightmare. <laughs> but like, yeah check back in with them later on um and they tend to be doing better than than their peers later on in life yeah once it sounds like maybe it's part of the difficulty or maybe a significant part of the difficulty is isolating happiness as a like as a variable that we should be overly emphasizing in our lives like it's not something that is it's like we just need to solve for the happiness factor in a sense but you're you're casting a vision that happiness may emerge from, but it, it's this unification of you know virtue, uh, the sense of purpose and meaning, and that happiness is somewhere in the mix. But it's not this thing that you've like completely separated as like the sole pursuit of my life. Yeah. So I, I do think, in some sense, that happiness is the goal of human life. That's something that I take from Aristotle. Um, but now what does that mean in practice? It means that your reasons for acting ultimately get their intelligibility from whatever your vision of happiness is. And your vision of how to live is basically your conception of happiness. Like what's going to fulfill me? And that's really the subjective side of the, of the happiness equation is the sense of being fulfilled. That's subjectively real in people. Yeah. That sense of deep joy and satisfaction, that is a subjectively real psychological first personal thing. Right. But what but then the question is, well, what really gets me that? Um, and for Aristotle, you know, one, you have to be doing certain kinds of activities, the kinds of activities that are characteristic of a good human life. And that's going to be the answer to that question is going to be grounded in an account of the kind of thing you are. Okay. You're, you're a human being, you're a human person and you have these certain capacities. Um, and, and we th can think of your capacities, um, as your ability to engage in certain activities. Um, and these need to be perfected and integrated in such a way that you can achieve that sense of being really satisfied with your life. So, so you, you have to basically become like a, a complete well-integrated human being, like all of these capacities for knowledge and feeling, uh, they all have to be regulated to attain certain goods that Aristotle thinks are central to a, to a good human life. Hmm. Well, where does where does Aquinas come in here? I'm, I'm he has this Aristotelian um, background and influence, but he also is importing um, a belief in God, a belief in in the transcendent. Well, yeah, How does to that... be fair, Aristotle believed in God as well, and and God That's is true. very central mover. to his metaphysics. Uh, it's 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 central to his entire system. So, but he doesn't believe in the Christian God. And and one of the huge differences 
between Aristotle and Aquinas is that Aristotle agrees with a lot of other Greeks that you can't be friends with God. That doesn't make sense. Because, like, God doesn't need you, you know? And also, you can't, like, (laughs) really reach God. So, you know, for him, the concept of friendship with God, which for Aquinas is the ultimate end of human life, it's friendship with God. Um, That is happiness. So that's a, that's a, that's a, yes, so that's a very huge gap between them. And it's not a gap that can be closed. I mean, I think you have to make a choice there um, about what you think is possible and probable. Yeah. Well, maybe, I don't know if you like feel comfortable sharing your inclinations on that. Because, I mean, I guess you we could go back to this albeit much more robust relativistic lens and say, well, I'm going to choose my pure Aristotelian pursuit of happiness. I'm going to cultivate virtue and all of these things in with a belief in meaning or, and I'm going to be happy. Or on the other hand, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue friendship with God as this prime goal or teleology. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, are they, could they both be happy? I think, I mean, I can tell you that in my case, um, You know, what I came into contact with, which was very fundamental for me, was looking at the lives of Christian saints. And and I would say that the most fundamental for me was St. Augustine. So the confessions, when I read the confessions, I knew that my life would never be the same. Like it was absolutely transformative for me. Um, I was a completely different person (laughs) when I closed that book than I was when I opened it. Um, Which is funny because I just read it out of this sense that like, oh, well, I I would be an uninteresting person if I hadn't read this book. (laughs) So so I read it. Uh, I mean, you know, it's whatever gets you Like I just wanted better banter at a cocktail party. But but it was totally... That's why I'm reading Infinite Jest right now. Yeah, Um, which is not a bad motive. I don't want to malign that motive, but um, in addition to being just such a beautifully written and moving and nearly perfect book, um, it just... It, it opened up this possibility of, of life that I didn't really see before. And that possibility of life was a very intellectually serious, ambitious person um, seeing the importance of making friendship with God the foundation of everything that he does and how this transform, how it completely transforms him. But I came to think that there was a different way of living um, that was not only more appealing or attractive to me, um, it was, but I think it was more appealing and attractive because I thought it better captured the truth. That is to say, I came to think that something was missing from that worldview. And I think this idea about friendship with God is not something that you get to just by rational argument. I think you have to see it. You know, I think you have to see it play out in people's lives. Um, and and th- and that's what I got out of reading the confessions and then subsequent readings of um, the lives of the saints. You, um, you, you start to realize that a Christian vision of the world 
is pretty different in a lot of ways, and it really is going to change your orientation in general, and that, of course, is going to impact the choices that you make. What would you say, kind of concluding here, what would you say to someone who's, you know, listen to this podcast, they just put down all their self-help manuals, they've been trying <laughs> to cultivate a sense of happiness in their own life, but they've they realized that's, that's a, a, a fairly flimsy um, approach towards cultivating this larger sense of meaning and purpose in the good life. Where should they start um, on this journey of maybe a more robust vision of, of happiness as we've talked about throughout this podcast? Yeah, I mean, this is a half serious, half in jest, but I actually think, uh, so Walker Percy uh, he was this uh, Southern writer, Louisiana, New Orleans, really. Uh, he had this kind of takedown, this ultimate parody of the self-help genre. It's called Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. Uh, <laughs> and it, and it's, it's hilarious and witty and philosophically deep and profound. But, it, but it's kind of a, a takedown of the entire self-help enterprise. Um, and it's, it's all about sort of locating what he calls the predicament of the self. It's sort of like, why, it's kind of like, why is it that you're always undermining yourself and you can't figure yourself out? And it's kind of like, why are you a mess? Um, <laughs> and, and of That's course, he, he doesn't think that he can write a self-help volume. He thinks there's nothing he, Walker Percy, is going to say that's going to get you out of this predicament. But he does, you know, he is a philosopher um, and, and he is a Catholic, and, and he, but he does want you to better understand your predicament, right? So that you'll see um, superficial or wrongheaded ways of negotiating your way out of it or, or learning to live with it or whatever. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fun in that book, but there's also a lot of good and interesting philosophy and, it, and it's an easy read. Um, but I think in general, you know, what, what should people do to be happier? I don't, I mean, I, I don't think there's any, um, or was that the question? Is the question, what should people do? I guess um, it's more, maybe even but something that undergirds that. Where could they even find the, the resources to cast a vision of, of the good life? Um, oh, well, yeah. Well, philosophy, obviously. Yeah, great, great answer. <laughs> I'm, uh, obviously, everyone should well. embrace philosophy in their life. And, of course, take many philosophy classes in college. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know even... why it's been so tough to convince all my friends to do this. <laughs> I had I lived with all engineers in college and and they didn't buy it at all. So yeah, it's too bad. I mean, I think you know, and especially in the American context, I think that philosophy is not on people's radars. If it is on people's radar, it's kind of like, um, it's it's kind of a thing that it actually isn't. So we think of it like gurus or something. Um, maybe, maybe somebody who's cordoned themselves off from society and is just thinking about stuff. I think we have a caricature of philosophy and what philosophy is, um, that is really sad and depressing and bad for us. Um, getting into philosophy and doing the kind of careful 
reflection and self-reflection that philosophy demands is going to be good for you. Um, It's going to be good for you. It's going to be unsettling for you, which is very good. It's very good to be unsettled, to be shaken from this idea that you've got it all figured out and you're on the right path because probably you're not and you don't. And it's good to become self-aware about this. And I think, um, think more about this Aristotelian ideal, take it seriously, the idea that, you know, what really is going to be central to whether or not you're happy and you feel satisfied with your life and you have found a kind of meaning and purpose in your life is going to be measured to a significant extent by the relationships that you've cultivated, Um, which is to say, who are the people you love and why do you love them? Hmm. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful vision. Well, Well, um, but it's also hard. That's also yeah. it's also Just to be clear hard. for all be... of you who are listening and thinking happiness is easy. It's not. It's, not. it's absolutely being a human being is very hard. Yes, absolutely. I feel like that all the time. Um, well, thank you so much, Jennifer. It's been an absolute delight to chat with you. Um, yeah, it's been fun. Obviously, uh, my personal interest in philosophy aside, I think it's just a fascinating topic, and I think one that is uh, very much on the minds of people growing up figuring out what does it mean to even be happy if you want to hear more and read more from jennifer be sure to check out her podcast sacred and profane love which can be found through her blog virtueblog.com and if you want to dig in to the meaty philosophy of the work she's doing Be sure to check out her interdisciplinary project with the John Templeton Foundation called Virtue, Happiness, and the Meaning of Life, as well as her forthcoming book, Self-Transcendence and Virtue. hear more and read more from Jennifer, be sure to check out her podcast, Sacred and Profane Love, which can be found through her blog, which which can be found through her blog, virtueblog.com. And if you want to dig in to the meaty philosophy of the work she's doing, be sure to check out her interdisciplinary project with the John Templeton Foundation called Virtue, Happiness, and the Meaning of Life, as well as her forthcoming book, self-transcendence and virtue which will be available on amazon which will be available on amazon starting november 28th